My name is Sam, I work here. Welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons. We are delighted to continue our celebrated lunchtime lecture series with a double header um, of speakers um, talking today. Uh, Ladies first, Emily Mayhew uh, is historian in residence at bioengineering at Imperial College. Her first book, The Reconstruction of Warriors, about the uh, guinea pig club, um, has sold terribly well and was the most shoplifted book in Watford Waterstones. And continuing on that theme, I can't wave a copy of her recent celebrated book, Wounded, um, because someone's walked off with my copy. I think it was one of those archivists that circling around. Edward Spurrier is an RAF orthopedic registrar currently completing his MD in bioengineering at Imperial College, hence the connection. He graduated from Southampton in 2003 and undertaking specialist training in the east of England. He's been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, has, has an interest in general trauma surgery, and we'll see how their two interests coincide in our talk today. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm going to be the person that moves the microphone down. This is a Sam-Emily joint thing is a problem. I recently here filmed an episode of a time team thing with Tony Robinson. And before they'd filmed with me, they'd filmed with Max Hastings, um, who is even taller than Sam. And I think they got me in because I make Tony Robinson look tall. Um, but anyway, thank you so much for coming. Uh, Ed and I are in the same department at Imperial. We're in the Center for Blast Injury Studies. And where I, uh, we are increasingly discovering remarkable parallels between casualty on the Western Front of the First World War and casualty in the 21st century conflicts whose, whose patients Ed directly deals with. And this is a, a map that kind of sums up all our interests. This is a stretcher-bearer map for, um, that was produced in 1917 prior to the Battle of Messine Ridge. And I'm going to go off mic now, so I'll shout really loudly, um, because I want to show you the link. Over here is the Kandahar Farm aid post. It's called the Kandahar Farm aid post because it was named after a fort in Afghanistan, where we were in 1917, and where troops were brought back from to the Western Front to fight. And they named it... Kandahar Farm after the, uh, the place they'd most recently been stationed in. And you can today visit the Kandahar Farm Cemetery um, in, uh, in Flanders. Um, and it is, it is a century of using that name. And a century of military involvement that perhaps politicians should have paid a tiny bit more uh, attention to. But that's another lecture entirely. I'm going to talk to you about the two most significant medical innovations in the First World War. Um, and I think what you'll see from when Ed talks to you, the resonances and the parallels, the direct parallels between a very large conflict which produced hundreds of thousands of casualties and the much smaller conflict in Afghanistan. But at the heart of both those conflicts is the same injury. And it is an injury, uh, an artillery injury, um, complicated by the effects of blast. Um, in Afghanistan, the blast injury is considerably more serious because you're talking about IEDs and roadside bombs. But in the First World War, it's the first time where you see comprehensive use of high-velocity uh, rifle, rifle uh, power and also artillery shells, high-speed, high high-energy artillery shells. 
And so for the first time, you have not tens, but hundreds of thousands of injuries that have not only the injury from the impact of the actual piece of metal. So whether it's a bullet, whether it's a shell fragment or a piece of shrapnel, and then you have the energy that is contained within that, that goes on damaging after the piece of metal itself has stopped. A couple of surgeons, a number of surgeons knew about this very early on. Some of the very first abdominal injuries that are brought to them in 1914 are men who have a relatively small nick on their stomach where a high velocity, a pointed high velocity bullet has gone into their stomach and they think it's going to be a relatively small injury. And then they open up and see that all the soft tissues within their stomach have been destroyed by the energy of the bullet continuing to do damage throughout the body. What these kind of injuries require is attention as close to the time and the point and place of wounding as possible. And this was something that did not, this was a service and a skill that simply did not exist in the First World War. Stretcher bearers were by and large bandsmen or soldiers too big or too stupid, in the words of the RAMC, to do any proper soldiering. They were quite simply porters. Very early on in the fighting on the Western Front, it was realized that this would not be enough. That what would be required would be a specific kind of medical expertise that could go as far forward as could be as would be possible, and so what was born was Britain's first stretcher bearer corps. And what distinguishes the stretcher bearer corps at the end of 1914 and into 1915 is their ability to do one very important thing, and that is to control hemorrhage. They were trained initially at the confusingly named Cambridge Hospital in Aldershot, um, and they were given a range of first aid and emergency care training, but absolutely fundamental to that training was learning the control of hemorrhage. If you couldn't stop a bleed, there was pretty much no point you're going out there. And it should be remembered that during this period, and for a remarkably long time afterwards, and again, this is something Ed will address, they were not allowed to control hemorrhage with tourniquets. The tourniquet was considered very dangerous, and there was a point to this. Um, uh, casualty evacuation times on the Western Front could be hours, two, three, four hours uh, or more. And a tourniquet would indeed be dangerous for somebody to use. So in order to control hemorrhage, the stretcher bearers were told that they should use pressure. They would take plenty of dressing pads and that they should use pressure. And that not only would they hold the, the, the pads down on the wound, but then they would be required to monitor the wound, to monitor the bleed all the way through uh, the remainder of the casualty evacuation. So again, this is requiring a whole new level of skill. I'm sorry, did I just do that? Do I need to just because it's such a lovely map, I love it so much. The Imperial War Museum threw this away, this map, and somebody fished it out and gave it to me. I didn't steal it, it was in a skip. I don't know if that's a defense, but that's where, anybody wants to know where it came from, I, I'm telling you now, that's where it came from. Um, and so this is not only learning the, the, the control of hemorrhage is not only a considerable skill in itself, but to keep monitoring the patient as you carry them along on the stretcher. 
that in itself is a very considerable skill. And these are the antecedents of our MERT crewmen today, of the, of the medical emergency rescue teams. The people that know how to save a life and keep it saved on the first leg of the casualty evacuation journey. Stretcher bearers become, very quickly, everybody realizes how well this system works. And it's, it's conceived on the hop by the Royal Army Medical Corps. We know very little about how they plan the training and how they plan the education. We know the story backwards because we know that it worked. We know that they arrive in France and that they are assigned to field ambulances and medical officers. And, field, and the medical officers are told that the second half of the training will be done in France and that this should be by general liaison with their bearer teams, but also with lectures at least once a week and that unless in times of the heaviest fighting, these lectures should not be skipped or rushed. And the system is taken very seriously. What happens quite quickly is that they, the medical officer, a good medical officer, and most of them are. Um, somebody asked me once if I was going to write a book that included tales of bad medical officers, but it's really not very interesting. Somebody goes to the Western Front and kills a lot of people. I'm, I'm really generally more interested in the really good ones because the really good ones embrace this new system. And quite soon, the lecture system, the once-a-week lecture that should not be skipped or rushed, becomes a much more interactive process because the medical officer and the, and the stretcher bearers are learning together about the environment in which they're practicing medicine, in which they're, in which they're rescuing casualties. And the bearers have as much, within about six months, they have as much to bring to those meetings as the medical officer. And the medical officers learn how much they can train them, how much they can give over to their stretcher bearers. They do everything from planning the routes together and locating their aid posts. And this is, this is we think, a map drawn by a regimental medical officer, but it may have been drawn by a lead stretcher bearer. They, they have the, the stretcher bearers often end up doing the mass inoculations. The stretcher bearers monitor trench foot. They do, they do, in addition to the heavy work of digging the aid posts and digging, repairing trenches, getting enough stretchers. Uh, that st the stretcher bearers learn to do what will become to be known as triage when they bring the, the patient in on their stretcher and they give clear instructions to the RMO as to when the injury occurred and what they have done along the way. This is not, this is not a portering job. This is a specific and technical medical skill. Wherever you look on the Western Front and you see groups of medics gathered together, it's not a group of doctors. It's usually a doctor and his bearer team. And in fact, this is something that's been remarkably invisible in the representations of the First World War so far. And in fact, it is my mission to go to as many places as possible and run through shouting the word stretcher bearers so that by the end of the commemoration, people will know about this remarkable group of men. They are always invisible on the film, in the films and the television. And yet in the frontline trenches, as the men wait to go over the top for the ladders to be pushed up and the whistles to blow, up, to blow off, there are bearers standing with them, trying to make themselves look as invisible as possible, gathering their stretchers up as tight as they can so men can't see what they are, and they get jostled, and the men say, get yourself a rifle, do something useful. And then they wait, and the men go over the top, and they count to 20, and then they get the ladders back and go over the top themselves and listen amongst the firing for the screams that are met for the, of the men that have gone down. And here comes a second 
skill set, if you will. The bearers find men who've jostled them, who've told them that they don't have a proper job, that they're not a soldier, that they should get a gun. And these men are suddenly dependent on them to save their lives. And they are mortified with guilt um, that they've done that. And they, when the bearer comes upon them, in addition to the, the cries of agony, they, they start to cry and they try to apologize. And one of the skills the bearer learns very quickly is thick skin, is to say, it doesn't matter, I've heard it all before, I'll hear it again, don't worry about it, let's bring you in. And another skill the bearer learns is who to leave behind. Who of those men cannot be saved? Who do you leave in the shell hole with an injection of morphine to hasten him on his way, sitting back on your heels waiting so they don't die alone? And who do you bring back? That is another set of skills that they cannot be trained for, that they can only learn on the Western Front as a group and with their medical officer, sharing stories of, of the decisions that they made uh, in, in the dugouts uh, during the night. So the creation of the, the specialist stretcher bearer corps is this first remarkable achievement on, on the first, of the First World War. And we see their descendants today, uh, the crews of MERT, the frontline uh, first responders, combat medical technicians, who go to the point of wounding or as close to the point of wounding as possible and give as much care, expert care, as can be given to keep someone alive for the next stage of their journey. The next stage of the journey uh, on the Western Front is the second most remarkable achievement of the, of the First World War, and it is the creation of the military medical system that we still use today. Uh, the field hospital, which is something that we know, we've heard for, of from the American Civil War and from South Africa, but it isn't recognizable in the form that it's developed to on the Western Front. Uh, even more confusingly, they are rarely called field hospitals. They are mostly called casualty clearing stations. But that's just a hangover from the original system. The casualty clearing system, the field hospital, is in fact a clinically capable forward surgical facility. It is driven by trauma surgery. Surgeons originally waited for the casualties by the coast of France and, of course, realized very quickly that a three- or four-hour journey for a man with a head wound or abdominal surgery or a chest wound, that was much too long. And that, like the stretcher bearers, they, too, had to go as far forward as the front would allow them. And so the system of field hospitals is set up. And by 1916, by the, by the time of the Somme, these things look like general hospitals. They have every ward you can conceive of, including, by the way, mental wards for um, uh, those who've had a mental breakdown. Uh, and they may be within five or six miles of the line, and they have labs, they have pathology, they have anaesthetists, they have preoperative and postoperative care, they have resus, they have moribund wards, the wards where people are taken when they're going to go to die. And they have become a community a medical community every bit as significant and remarkable as any large London teaching hospital. And in fact, they have those, when you go into an NHS hospital and you have those signs with the multiple arrows pointing in multiple different directions, they come from there. That was where there are, there are plenty of those for the field hospitals, pointing to the, the range of different departments that there are that, that can be drawn upon by people treating the wounded soldiers. And it was very interesting, I was reading uh, some writing by Brig Brigadier Tim Hodgetts the other day, and he talked about how trauma care in Afghanistan was not only on par with what was offered by the best of the NHS, that actually it was slightly better. And once again, it reminded me of a letter I read in 1917. 
uh, written by a surgeon to his patient, who, and his patient had been injured in a tram accident in Croydon. And the surgeon was saying, we'll do what we can for you, but the problem is that all the really good men and all the really good wards are out in France. What you really need to do is get yourself over there and have them treat you, and they'll probably save your leg. Um, and so the resonances reach back all the time. And so when you're looking at the Western Front, those are the two things that I, I want you to remember, that everything, a great deal of medical expertise was not only moved forward, but it was created and pushed further forward than anybody's ever gone uh, in the history of military medicine. And it created a system that effectively we still use today, and which we've been able to see is every bit as effective different numbers, same levels of commitment, same levels of effectiveness. And I hope Ed's going to back me up on that. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I don't often need to move microphones up, it's marvellous. So my name's Ed Spurrier. As mentioned, I'm an Air Force orthopaedic trainee, and I'm working now at Imperial College managed by the Centre for Defence Medicine, but at the Centre for Blast Injury Studies, which is a unique centre in that we combine clinicians and basic scientists, engineers and cell biologists and all that sort of thing to try to answer clinically relevant uh, military medical questions about injury mechanisms and, and prediction in basic science ways. And we're the only centre in the world that has both clinicians and basic scientists. This is a, a slightly larger scale map uh, of that shown by Emil a, mom a moment ago of the Western Front in, uh, the, towards the end of the First World War. And I'd like to draw your attention to the idea of symmetric warfare. A symmetric war is that in which the two opposing sides are about the same sort of size, have similar types of military with similar sort of fighting doctrine. And the effect of that generally is you have one side that's friendly and one side that's enemy and a line in the middle that may or may not move occasionally. And where you are and, where, you, and uh, where your territory is, is clear and fairly static. How static it is, is shown quite nicely by this photograph I took a little while ago in Mons. And this bus here is parked on the memorial to the last British soldier killed in the First World War. And I am standing on the memorial to the first British soldier killed in the First World War. Four years and three quarters of a million men to cross the road. Modern conflict tends to be asymmetric, and by that... We mean one large, well-equipped army fighting a group of insurgents, often very wealthy, but not with a similar doctrine and not necessarily with predictable lines. So this is Helmand, and it's a large geographic area about the size of England, and in that there's no line. There's us, there's friendly civilians, there are allied forces, there are insurgents, but we don't know where anyone is at any one time. We don't know what's friendly, we don't know what's enemy territory. So we could zoom in to any town, and that house there could be a Taliban, that house there could be a school. And the next day, we could go back to the same town, and they've swapped. One's a school, one's full of Taliban, one's full of someone else friendly, and one's full of something else unfriendly. You don't know from day to day where your friends and enemies are. I shall wait for the computer to catch up. Yeah. So that presents some specific challenges to, uh, to the medical chain. If you don't know where your casualties are likely to be, you can't lay down a logistic chain in advance. It's harder to get to a casualty who's suddenly arisen in the middle of a town that's got variable amounts of friendliness and safety in it. You have to fight your way in and fight your way out. 
and evacuating a casualty across often long distances with a risk of ground fire and anything else is challenging. Positioning your field medical units in that chain between here and the UK can be complex and you may have to change things frequently. You may find, as we did in Iraq and Afghanistan, you can settle quite happily in one place for a while. There's a key enabler to being able to do that, and that's air power. Air power isn't just some tornadoes with bombs or a reconnaissance pod attached going off to uh, suppress someone, someone to allow you to get at your casualty, but it's reconnaissance so you know where people are. It's an armed overwatch so you can fly in somewhere uh, knowing where the enemy is in respect to you. And it's a chain that allows you to get a casualty from the point of injury to the field hospital to the UK safely. Everything in NATO is standardised, including the length of boiling an egg. Uh, this is a hierarchy of casualty evacuation. And we can translate this approximately to what Emily was talking about a few minutes ago. We talk about roll zero as being the medic on the ground, the person with his own tourniquet or his buddy with a tourniquet to control hemorrhage once again to the fore as the way to save lives. And then roll one, the regimental aid post at which the medical officer, a GP or a junior doctor, provides initial resuscitation. And roll two, the field hospital, as we've seen for many years, uh, which surgery starts, and gradual evacuation back through to the roll four centres, which we define as a large trauma centre, normally in our case, Birmingham. So let's follow the journey of an imaginary patient. This is Taff, who was originally going to give this lecture, but uh, is detained by the birth of his child uh, as a regimental medical officer out in Afghanistan a few years ago. The terrain is variable, some friendly, some unfriendly, some lush green, some desert. So the first thing to do when you're wounded is to get some aid, control hemorrhage, and get pain under control. And that may be done by your mate, who's a buddy aide, and we have team medics with every patrol. Or it may be done by your medical officer, who's maybe with you. We then need to get some, serious, some uh, aid to you and get you back towards evacuation. Evacuating people over rough ground is difficult and dangerous and tiring. And carrying two people with 80 or 100 kilograms of kit each on top of themselves uh, across miles of terrain is a challenge. So we try to get the aid as far forward as we can. In order to do that, we introduce the MERT concept, the Medical Emergency Response Team, and that puts paramedics, uh, anaesthetists, nurses, or A&E &E doctors frequently on a Chinook helicopter, usually flying in formation with uh, Prince Harry and the Apache at the back, to try to get as close as possible as the casualty. And that frequently means the gunner on the back firing as they go in. Almost all of the patrols we sent out were met by fire and had to suppress someone to get in and get a casualty out. So fighting in to get to the casualty. They're then loaded very rapidly onto a helicopter. And this picture just gives you an idea of how little space there is. And you imagine this little space with the noise and the vibration of being in the back of a military helicopter, treating a patient, bringing blood transfusion and early hemorrhage control in the back of an aircraft to get back to uh, the field hospital. This is one I got in Iraq some time ago of a uh, not much lamented Merlin helicopter arriving at Basra. So the next thing happens is you arrive at a field hospital facility where you're met by an enthusiastic team of medics. Put a bit of weight on since then. This is a Roll 2 hospital. This is in Shaiba in uh, Iraq some time ago. And we standardise this as we standardise everything in NATO. And Roll 2 is a, a funny term because it covers almost everything. A Roll 2 hospital could be a light surgical unit, in which case we put one of these little tents up here 
and we put an operating theatre out and we put an anaesthetic room in and we start resuscitating people. And we've shown in recent exercise and recent conflicts that we can have a, a, a surgical team arrive at a location and have a casualty on the table anaesthetised and being operated on in 25 minutes. Up to a standard Roll 2 hospital. And they're all the same, roughly. A spine corridor down the middle and then a standard order of wards. So resuscitation, minor injuries, x-ray, theatres, a lab, a ward, uh, ITU, and the wards, and then everything else at the back. So you can extend this as much as you like. You just keep adding length to it, and you can put whatever you want on the back. So roll two might mean a tent or the field hospital in Afghanistan. Let's go on a tour through this. This is Basra when I was there. Note the uh, hole in the... Um, blast shield there caused by a particularly aggressive form of high-velocity mice. So you arrive at the front of the hospital uh, into the corridor, and whether you're walking in or you're coming on a stretcher, you come through the main corridor into resus, turn left into a resuscitation room. Now this doesn't look that different to an NHS resus room. It's in a tent. We've got blast walls between the patients. Everything comes in modules, so we can unpack it or pack it quickly and move. But we've got nice beds. We've got some nice clinical waste things. We've got an x-ray in the corner. We can get all these facilities quite quickly into a unit. Here's a resus team. Uh, so an A&E doctor, an anaesthetist, a general duties medical officer who's normally a GP trainee and an SHO. Anonymous. Ready to receive their casualty. This again is Basra about 2008. And we can contrast that in a moment with Afghanistan. We had a particular hazard of some high-velocity mice in that hospital, so every day we'd have a few new holes in the walls or a new hole in the operating theatre, which does make trauma surgery a little more exciting. This is the resus room in Bastion, or circa 2011. Are you below the elbow? A large resus team. We've got an American radiographer there and this wonderful X-ray system that shows you images instantly. Our general principle for resuscitating people quickly is to have a large team ready when the patient gets there so we get everything done very fast and then move to the next patient, move them through to x-ray, move them through to theatre. Everything happens quickly because we focus results on one patient at a time. But again, this is a bit like an NHS resource room. We've got a bed, we've got an anaesthetic room, we've got a scribe in the corner. There's nothing unusual about the team. This is theatres. This was theatres in Bastion in 2011. It's one big room with four tables in it. Otherwise, it doesn't look that different to an NHS operating theatre. I would draw your attention to this, the Rotem, the thromboelastography, so we can monitor clotting as we go through an operation, something I'd love to see in the NHS more often. We had one separate little theatre for the really uh, infected or dirty cases, or the ones that have to be kept hotter. Although our uh, principle for avoiding hypothermia in those patients was to keep the theatre at 35 degrees when we were operating. Theatre team. Uh, so... In a standard field hospital, in a more mobile operation, you have one orthopaedic surgeon, one general surgeon, possibly a junior doctor, and a theatre staff person. They'd be on 24 hours a day. Back to Afghanistan, we expand that team hugely. <clears throat> we have an extremely effective logistics chain. And when we spend a day operating over on a night operating, sometime in the middle of the night and early morning, the evacuation team, CCAS, critical care and the air support team turn up in a Hercules, a mighty Hercules, to take the patients away, which can be quite disconcerting. You spend a whole day operating on people. You may do 10 or 15 cases on British and American soldiers, and then in the morning, they've all left. So this is the back of a transport aircraft with a CCAS team, with an anaesthetist and a team of specialist nurses transporting patients straight back to the UK, where they arrive at Birmingham, an established Roll 4, as we call it, a major trauma centre, 
which combines military and civilian uh, surgeons, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, and everything else to get people back on their, the road to recovery as best we can. So what medical improvements have we made recently or carried over from the First World War? We've mentioned a couple of these. CABC, in ATLS and civilian first aid, we start with the airway. We don't do that in the military. We did for a long time. Back in the First World War, the medics as, uh, and the stretcher bearers started with catastrophic hemorrhage, and we've gone back to that. It's a hemorrhage that kills people fast, and it's a hemorrhage we control first. We've enhanced body aids, so everyone is trained how to put their tourniquet on, and everyone gets a tourniquet and a compression dressing. And every patrol team has a team medic with them. We've introduced hemostatic dressings to help control bleeding. I'll show you some in a sec. And we've introduced the MERT to get as much of a, uh, a trauma system as we can, as far forward as a casualty as we can. More recently, we've had a blood transfusion on the helicopter. Now, back in the days of the First and Second World War, we were a little desperately short of doctors, and we got everyone we possibly could as far forward as we could. And even when I was in Iraq, there were a lot of uh, general duties medical officers, SHOs, quite a long way forward not always supervised. That doesn't happen anymore. We're now very consultant-led. The one key thing we'll talk about is the right to turn resuscitation. We don't take patients to resuscitate them to the theatre. We resuscitate them in theatre. We also added the concept of the bastion scan, the taking everyone through the CT to scan them top to toe. The scanner we had took three seconds to scan someone top to toe in one millimetre slices, which is a phenomenally good diagnostic skill. The tourniquet. As Emily said, they used to be dangerous, and when I was a scout, we were told that if we put a tourniquet on someone in a first aid lesson, we'd kill them, we'd be arrested and put in prison. But now everyone has a tourniquet, and putting a tourniquet on stops you bleeding and stops you dying. We've also added hemostatic agents. Quick Clock came out back in uh, Iraq. It uh, essentially is a volcanic ash, which produces a lot of heat at the site of a wound and controls clotting, as well as giving you full thickness burns. We've abandoned that in favour of Sealox gauze, which is a brilliant invention. It's made of crushed up prawn shells wrapped into a gauze dressing, and it uh, really is very effective at stopping even arterial hemorrhage. I've stuck this on an aorta, and it stops bleeding almost instantly. If you are ever shot in a takeaway or restaurant, I would advise you a Chinese takeaway is the way forward, and a prawn cracker is the first aid dressing of choice. <laughs> Traditional doctrine in ATLS and the NHS held that you have a patient who's been in some sort of trauma arrive, be resuscitated, then go to an operation to try to stabilise whatever injuries they've got. And then when that's either done or they decide you're too sick to carry on, go to ITU and be resuscitated. We don't do that. We don't see a need to separate resuscitation from trauma, uh, from trauma surgery. Trauma surgery is hemorrhage control and stabilisation surgery. It is resuscitation. We now have damage control resuscitation. So we assess, we operate, and we start to finish the treatment, and we resuscitate all the way. So the most severely injured don't go to resus or don't go to ITU before theatre. They go to resus, they need to get a quick x-ray, they go to CT, and they're in theatre in about five or ten minutes from arriving. This is a, a confusing and complex slide, and it's mostly pointless, except to point out that the casualties injured over here and the, the Royal Four Hospital is over here. And in 1914, 1918, there's a very clear line of friendly territory over which you were flown on or, or trained in those days on your way back to the Royal Four. And that's moved gradually forward with deployed hospitals in Iraq and Afghanistan not necessarily being in friendly territory. But in future conflicts, where will the hot zone be and where will the friendly zone be? I suspect we'll find frequently either that everything is in unfriendly territory from the uh, casualty reception to the definitive hospital or that everything is friendly territory. And this hot zone could well be an explosion on the bus just down the road tomorrow. 
My final slide is just a little uh, map, a little out of date now of what's going on in Iraq at the moment, but just an example of how we have a large geographic area in which there's a large variation in how friendly and permissive the environment is, and a very large variation in how complex the logistic and medical chain is, and a very large variation in how likely uh, we are to see significant conflict and war in the next couple of years. Thank you. Any questions, please? <clears throat> Whilst you pause, um, uh, just while you gather yourselves for questions, I'd like to thank both our speakers. Um, I'm used to being humbled by Emily as a historian. Um, I was also humbled by Edward as a, as a patient myself. Um, so thank you both very much. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of questions. We've got lots of time. Please. Um, many years ago, I Mm -hmm. The name of the game was then Western Europe and fine warfare probably mm -hmm. and mass casualties. And what you've explained in Afghanistan is absolutely admirable. Um, presumably, and perhaps you could expand on this, as well as the attention to individual injuries, mm -hmm. you had a plan for triage, which is the name of the game, and dealing with mass casualties if that we did, and we, we've frequently had more than one turn up at once, and typically in, in Afghan we'd expect three or four patients to turn up simultaneously, and that would happen three or four times a day. So we were geared to triaging the larger casualty scenarios, getting the ones who really needed immediately and on the table immediately, and some of those then did need a bit more resource while we waited to operate. And the way we did that normally was to get as many people as we could at once doing the immediate life-saving stabilization surgery and then leaving one person finishing up or putting X fixes on or stabilizing while everyone else moved on to the next. So it certainly worked the level of casualties we had. And I think the, the largest number I've had turn up with gunshots simultaneously was 23 once in Bajor. And with me and two surgeons, we, we, uh, we got through them in a day. But certainly the, the mass casualty doctrine is, is still there. We still have a triage system. Yes, and, and the, planning, the planning that's going on now, um, there are, we're, we're obviously back to more, perhaps more conventional forms of, of continental warfare, uh, looking at the Ukraine and possibly the Baltics. And the major concern for people restructuring and planning for what's going ahead is that there won't be the command of the air that we have in, in uh, Afghanistan, that you won't be able to use MERT. And so different forms of expertise will have to go f forward and stay forward until people can be evacuated much more slowly. But it, it's always, you know, everybody thought that this was a, everybody thought asymmetric, unconventional warfare is pretty much what we're going to have in the 21st century. And suddenly we're back to older Cold War models. So let's hope somebody's paying attention to what you. Carrying on with the theme of dealing with blood, I'm going to know how you Not in huge detail, because I must admit, I, I sort of, it, it's in the fridge. Um, we do transport, a, so the, the flights in and out of places like Bashan, Iraq were regular, so they almost all had some blood on them. We also had a system for getting platelets from people, hospital staff in theatre, and there's always uh, a panel, everyone who goes out is screened for transfusion from the emergency panel. So we got through huge amounts of blood. We gave one patient 200 units in his primary surgery, uh, and the uh, of blood and FFP and platelets. Uh, so there's always huge demand, but also fortunately a hugely effective logistic chain, which 
when you have something like a, a volcanic ash cloud limiting flights became rather more stretched but uh, the emergency system is to get local transfusions and hospital staff and then other people out in the base and with between 10 and 30,000 people at Bastion at any one time there's a, a large donor pool available. Uh, lady here, yes please. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, the things we've been doing in the last few years is working rather more closely with the civilian system, and part of the link of that is, is having a lot of reservists going back to uh, civilian hospitals. So the established system for triaging mass casualty, we call the MIMS system now, and that has been translated across to civilian hospitals. So every NHS hospital has a major casualty plan, which is usually based on our doctrine. So we've, we've translated that across to cope with the potential train crash scenario which really remains a, a constant threat. You've also got, as Ed was saying, you've also got people who have got, uh, the reservists who've gone back in, and they are making their experience in Afghanistan and Iraq felt. This was particularly relevant in the United States. After the Boston bombings, there was a team of, of trauma surgeons who had just rotated back from Afghanistan to their posts at Mass General. And as a trauma surgeon, what you're dealing with is, 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 is mostly limb loss. And at the Boston bombings, you had the standard uh, casualty, which was limb loss. And so those patients were taken straight to Mass General, where the team managed to save uh, far more limbs than would have been done by a an ordinary civilian team with ordinary civilian training. So you get a certain amount of this... Per I mean, that's luck if you happen to get a guy... If you go in a car crash and you get a guy who's come back from Afghanistan. But um, you, you are getting that kind of experience percolating into the National Health Service. Um, the other thing to say is that Ed talked about this business of giving um, uh, blood transfusions on the helicopters. This is, I think, possibly the newest protocol that has been adapted from military medicine in Afghanistan to civilian medical practice here. They trialed the, the use of giving uh, blood trans or preparatory blood transfusions in the helicopters um, and, uh, and in fact, as opposed to waiting until you get to the hospital. And that's now been introduced. The same system is being used in the London Ambulance Service. Um, and that is a direct something that was, that was, it was tried and proved in Afghanistan and is now being used in uh, civilian circumstances. And it's going to be interesting for me as a historian to see how much of that makes its way through to the civilian system. Yes. Well, I'm going to make a trial that didn't happen, and perhaps it's an extension of that. You see how this can work so well in a hierarchical military system <laughs> with it in terms of its clear organisation. Uh, do you feel that it's made a, a lot of difference in the national organisation in the way that the civilian in this country, bearing in mind that we may have all the things that we not be made to deal with around the border? Well, I think the, the thing to add into that is that the recent change in the trauma management system in the UK with centralised trauma units taking most major trauma. And I, I'd like to think now that the that most train crash casualties will go to a trauma centre and be triaged at scene. So we, I think that has made the NHS system more hierarchical and more prepared for such incidents. So I, I think it translates in those units. I think if all 70 casualties turned up in somewhere that isn't designated as a, a major trauma unit... Uh, by the, the traumas network system, it may be a little more complex. 
I don't work in the NHS, so I'm not going to comment on that. Yeah. Please. Uh, question go back to it's difficult to say that it gave a strategic advantage, but we have a we do have a very different system from the French and the Germans. And I should emphasize that this is just about the Western Front. Um, the other fronts uh, where, where the Army Medical Services were involved, look, they aren't nearly as effective. They're mostly dealing with communicable disease. Not there, there isn't the, the volume of, of trauma casualties. So it's, it's different if you're in Mesopotamia. But on the Western Front, the British system looks quite different. It, it partly looks quite different because of the channel, because you've got to get people, you've got to treat people in, in new hospitals, and then you've got to get them across the channel and back to Blighty. Um, the, whereas the French and Germans relied on the hospital network that they already had. The idea was that if you were a French casualty or a German casualty, you went back on your own railway to your own hospital in Reims or Rouen or wherever the nearest town was to the, uh, was to the battlefield. And those, uh, those hospitals didn't, weren't specially created for, for battlefield casualty. They weren't driven by the same, uh, the same imperatives. And the evidence is that they weren't effective. There are two import really important differences. Firstly, no one ever creates a specialist stretcher bearer corps except for the British. And I think that this has to do with the fact that we have the most professionalized medical profession in 1914. Pro nurses are the nursing profession in 1914. Everywhere else, very small units of professional nurses. The vast majority of care is done by the religious orders. In fact, uh, nurse Edith Cavill is in Belgium to open a nursing college. She's going to train up a new generation of professional nurses to go into the, to the Belgian medical system, but also for the Belgian army. And she does so against a great deal of opposition because many people think that women shouldn't be professional nurses. It is the job of the religious orders. And any other nursing demands that, that are more complex can be handled by male orderlies. So the British system looks very different. The evidence is it's, it's more effective, but I don't have a great deal of that. Um, and it's for reasons that... that that have to do with the professionalization of the relative la of, of the layers of the British medical profession. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's very cool. It's one of those stories where we're better than everyone else. Hooray. <laughs> uh, can I follow up on that? Do you know anything about how the hostile groups in Afghanistan were treating and evacuating um, their wounded? Uh, well, in honesty, most of them came to us. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't really have their own hospital, so I, uh, we, we had a very large number of Taliban patients. Uh, probably about a third of our casualties when I was there. So we, we did and indeed still do have a, a weekly sort of teleconference between everywhere we've got uh, medical teams. So it's still going on now. 
so everyone knows throughout the whole chain what's happening to everyone. That's quite good, both in terms of communication logistics for the patients who are going back, mm. but for uh, feedback for the doctors at the front. Say, oh, you missed that, or could have done that a bit differently. Uh, in the NHS, I suppose that, again, back to the trauma network system now, the when uh, an ambulance is called or catches a triage at scene, where they go to is decided by a central call centre, and then they're sent off somewhere. Is there any communication back? I don't think there is an analogue. Um, I suppose one of the things on our side for making that work was that e even at the peak of conflict, the numbers were manageable within the context of a couple of hours of phone call. Uh, it, albeit some of those were very short conversations. The numbers we have in the NHS would make that a, a difficult thing to do nationally. Like, it probably would be a helpful system to instate more locally. I think it would, I think it would be a useful exercise. This is one of the well. There, this is one of the things where where um, it, where it does differ. One of the most remarkable uh, phenomena that I observed uh, studying uh, the, the Army Medical Service on the Western Front is how independent uh, the, the people on the ground in France are, how much is left up to them, how much they are allowed to improvise. Um, they, they never have to go back to, uh, to central office. They never have to talk to Alfred Keo. They don't have to get things approved. A whole independent network of conferences, of newsletters, of exchange of information between the medical officers on the ground and the surgeons in the field hospital builds up. We have very few papers from them because they didn't generate any. They didn't need to. This was another difference between them and France. In France, any really big decisions, infrastructural decisions or policy decisions about, about their, their military medicine all had to go back to Paris for, for central approval. But, but in that respect, everything is very much left up to the doctors on the ground and, and you get approval afterwards. Oh, certainly. The um, well, actually, they mostly weren't that much trouble. But we we put them uh, back in the wards, and they they weren't allowed to see other things that they shouldn't have seen uh, when being taken from wards to uh, theatres and whatever else was necessary. Now we had a fairly hefty security presence when, when required. And did you bring the gators in to talk to them, or how, how did you handle the language? Oh, in, 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 yes, we had interpreters on the, on the wards, yeah, the full-time staff. Yeah, okay. That's something in, on the Western Front. Um, very many doctors, quite a significant proportion of the doctors uh, on the Western Front, in fact, it, in, British, in the British medical profession at the time, would have done a year's rotation in either Vienna or, or Germany. Um, particularly if you were in orthopedics, because that was where the leading uh, men of the day were. And so a lot of the, uh, quite a high proportion of the medical staff in, on the Western Front spoke German. Um, and this made it much easier when you had a ward full of prisoners of war that you were having to treat. Slightly different, you have to bring an interpreter, yeah. yeah. In particularly in areas like Afghan, where the, yes. the patients speak a wide variety of languages. Mm. Yeah. I just wonder if um, spinal injuries on the platform front pose a particular problem, how they you know, you can transport the patient quickly and as safely as possible, given that they probably um, you know, extensive um, you know, damage. So we're, we're looking at that at the moment. That's a part of the area of my research in terms of instability of the spine after blast injuries. So we tend to say that if you have a gunshot wound to the spine, uh, that has caused instability, those are almost invariably fatal injuries. 
Uh, we don't have a, la a large cohort of people with gunshot wounds that aren't a, that are a major problem. In terms of blast injury, things like lumbar vertebral fractures are very common indeed, and they are potentially unstable. But, so we try to maintain spinal stability when we evacuate people on a stretcher and in the back of the aircraft by putting them on a sensible stretcher and keeping them still as best we can. But it's certainly something that is limited. You can't carry a spinal board, you can carry a folding stretcher. So there's, there's a limited ability to uh, protect the spine in, in, in the transport chain. But we do as best we can. Didn't Thorburn do research on spines in the First World War? I can't remember. I think that was mostly post-mortem, as it were. It was a, that was an injury that I think they, they realised that mostly defeated them, exactly. You read, and mostly in, in the First World War, you're reading about limb loss. You're a facial casualty which you have the wonderful exhibition upstairs, um, and, and limb loss. If you have a very bad abdominal wound, a head wound, or a spinal injury, you aren't making it out of, out of the, off the Western Front. The curious thing, and I haven't got it with me, but a lovely x-ray of a, uh, a patient in Iraq with a 7.62 millimeter drilled hole through a cervical vertebra from a Kalashnikov, and no neurological compromise whatsoever. So you can have some spectacular-looking injuries and no, uh, no compromise at all, but often uh, devastating and, and untreatable and unsurvivable. And of course, um, spinal injury now is it, the, the body armour is much more effective, so they are Absolutely. able to. You, you're not seeing, the, you don't see the same sort of uh, same sort of level of spinal injury. Very briefly, you mentioned this magic scanning device, which uh, you can do body scanning in seconds. Mm -hmm. Is that now being important? The larger trauma centres do tend to have a, a, a scanner close to resus, so they can get people through it quickly. Yeah, that's. Uh, Certainly the Royal London is very much a standard thing to do. Can I just tell you my Royal London trivia thing? If you're going to the mm -hmm. exhibition upstairs, the Royal London is where the elephant man was lived. And Henry Tonks is at the Royal London at the same time mm -hmm. as the elephant man. Um, and he must have known the elephant man because he was pupil to Frederick Treves. And when I look at those photographs upstairs, I think if you've seen the elephant man in the flesh on a daily basis... Going and, and, and painting, those, painting the pictures of those casualties, you've seen the very worst that nature can do, and man can't really compete. That's my elephant man. I end, we end on note of the elephant man. Always try and end a lecture on an elephant man uh, note. Ed, that's my tip. Thank you very much. Good questions.